A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hi, listeners. I'm Benjamin Thompson coming to you from the South London basement once more. Welcome to this week's edition of Coronapod. Noah Baker is here once again, and returning is Amy Maxman. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi there, Ben. Hi, Amy. Amy, we haven't had you on for a few weeks. How are things in California? Things are going really well. You know, the vaccine is rolling out here in the U.S. My older relatives are now getting it, and that means I get a lot of text messages with questions. And my aunt Mimi, who's wonderful, she's sort of like a socialite living in New York City, but she's... Uh, in her late 70s. So she's gotten her second vaccine. She can't wait to see her friends. And her first questions are things like, can I go out to eat with my friends who are also vaccinated? Which is actually sort of tricky to answer. You know, this is not the first time that Aunt Mimi has been on Coronapod. Quite some time ago, you referenced Aunt Mimi from early on in the pandemic when she was asking you questions. I really love that she's made another appearance. You know, she used to like, hate science like she would laugh about how she would throw out the science section of newspapers but now like daily she's texting me that she's like amy tony fauci's on pbs it's good for you to know these things is this where you're getting your tips amy <laughs> this is how i'm keeping my ear to the ground i mean in fairness to our Amy, she is asking some of the questions that researchers really do want to know the answers to right yeah absolutely it's one of the things last week when we were discussing potential futures for where the covid19 pandemic might be in a year and a half's time it seems that many of these vaccines protect individuals from severe disease but do they stop transmission of the virus and the answer to that question is really really vital to work out what the kind of future of the pandemic might look like because that really changes the game and that's not an easy question to answer it needs a lot of data it needs a lot of studies and people are starting to get closer to answers there. Amy, you've been looking into a database this week that is maybe one step towards finding some of these answers. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to talk later about some studies that are directly trying to study people and see what their viral levels are like after the vaccine and if they can transmit it to the people in their households. But there's other ways to get at these questions as well. And something that epidemiologists do is they go for big numbers and sort of big data. So yeah, so I wrote about a database that launched this week. It's exciting. I think they collected so far individual level data from 24 million people and they're anonymized. But this is different than say like the Johns Hopkins coronavirus tracker that looks at 
kind of aggregate numbers, total numbers of cases in different states or different countries. This is trying to look at individuals. So it's listing up to 40 variables per individual, such as what date did they feel sick? What date did they go to the hospital? What date did they die? Do they have any contacts? Questions like that. And this is going to help epidemiologists crunch the numbers and make estimates of, say, like, how long does this virus incubate for inside somebody? When are they most infectious? Kind of the things you really need to know to roll out responses. And this is also going to help moving forward when you can plug in things like, do they have a variant? Were they vaccinated? Might they have gotten COVID from somebody who was vaccinated? So this is maybe in somewhat marked difference to what we've talked about previously, where data was siloed by maybe different government departments or different countries or, you know, different university institutions, for example. This is all of it together in one place. Exactly. That's kind of the big sort of game changer here. So usually, you know, it's siloed. Maybe one health department reports it well, or maybe it's just news sources. So to kind of back up, the way this all started a year ago is January 2020, a lot of epidemiologists were following this strange new pneumonia in China. And they did what they do when there's an emerging epidemic. They make their own kind of homemade spreadsheets. And, you know, in the beginning of an outbreak, especially, a lot of the news sources are just articles in whatever language they're written in. And so they'll comb these different articles and they'll plug things into their spreadsheet, like one man who's 64, fishmonger, got sick, had coughing, died on this date. And then son of fishmonger, got sick the day he died, something like that. And that's where they begin to be able to learn things. So they were doing what they do, making their own spreadsheets. One of the spreadsheets was on Google spreadsheets. So it was kind of open for people in the community. And then there was like this debate on Twitter in late January, where some epidemiologists were saying, this is definitely frequently spreading between humans. Others were like, "Mm, I don't know if it's definitely like we knew maybe it did sometimes, but not how often. But then because people started looking at this one database, they were able to really make that assessment, not based on their sort of gut feeling for how quickly cases would have gone up between humans, but based on the actual data in the database. So this sort of grew and grew. Lots of people started contributing to the database. And today it comes out with some support from Google and from the Rockefeller Foundation that will make it be like in the cloud and have some automated bits and also accessible to anyone. You just need to log in, agree to terms and conditions, and I guess you can download all that data. With access to data, researchers can do a lot of things. And with access to data that is transparent and reliable, they can do even more things. I mean, I say reliable, I'm sure there's caveats with everything, as there are always caveats. I think back to the beginning of the pandemic, when a lot of the best data we had about you know, case fatality rates and things were coming from individual cruise ships, which were sort of natural experiments that happened. And it's been difficult to do really, really large scale epidemiological work, especially across the world, when you think about different cultures and things, because there are so many different data sources. And this maybe is the first place where some of the sort of signals in all of that noise might be able to be teased out a little bit to add to all of those earlier studies. Exactly, because anything under the sun can happen when you've got millions of people. You will get things you never thought you'd see. So we've heard a lot of reports about somebody being reinfected, getting COVID twice. I know at Berkeley, I was just told there's a student at Berkeley who's reinfected and they have a variant. 
So, you know, maybe it means you lose immunity to the new variants. But it's hard to say from one person because we're all a little bit different. One is one. But if you have a huge number, now we can start saying, is this what we would expect? Or is this much more than what we would expect? How hard is this to do, to pull together hundreds of millions of records? You say it's been done sort of a little bit homemade to begin with. What's been the the stumbling block to getting to this point now? Yeah, it's a great question because it's one of those things that it's hard to get anybody excited about, except for if you're an epidemiologist because it's actually super hard. So one stumbling block is the information. You know, everybody reports in different ways, you know, especially when you're talking about combing news articles and getting the information out of that. That's one difficulty. Then some countries, like for example, Sam Scarpino, who's part of this project who I spoke with, and I should say the database is at a website called global.health. He was saying, you know, back when they were combing a bunch of data from different Asian countries like South Korea and Singapore, especially, it was like they had all the information right there. You know, there's 10 cases at this shoe store, at this mall in this town. So it was super simple to get a lot of the information. A lot of it was standardized. So it was pretty easy to plug into the website manually. And then with a grant they actually got from Google.org, they also were able to write some codes that made some data sources automatically feed into their database if they were reported in really standardized ways. So certain countries have centralized systems where their governments report data on every case in a very standard way. Remember, we're not just wanting numbers. We want to know, say, their age or their race and when they had symptoms. You want all that stuff. When it gets trickier is when... Data is not computed from a centralized source in a way that's really standardized. And that's a lot of countries. It's uh, definitely the U.S. Sam was saying when the outbreak in the U.S. got super huge and they wanted to track all that data, a huge part of the problem was just finding it and manually having to put it in. He said, you know, even in like the state of Massachusetts, they changed their data reporting systems at least four times. So then they have to kind of redo how they're entering everything. So That's what makes it really tough. There's a lot of manual labor that goes into this. I think, you know, midpoint last year, they had 100 epidemiologists volunteering around the world to enter in data. So it's just a lot of human power. And then, of course, you know, this was being done on a Google spreadsheet. That doesn't work after a while. It's just too much data, too many people working on it. So then that's when they applied for this fellowship so they could get some assistance to put the database on the cloud and just start writing some codes. And I think it's also worth mentioning that one of the key things that they need to do here when gathering all this data is to make sure it's all properly anonymized. Data security is vital here and privacy is really, really important. And that's no small task either. No. So actually, that's something that's really interesting because I had heard researchers complaining that they love to do studies, but hospitals and health departments wouldn't allow them access to the data because of privacy concerns which aren't nothing. We do want privacy. But sometimes it was almost as if people are just worried. So they'd rather err on the side of caution and just say, no, I don't want to share it because they don't really know how to properly share it and what's legal and what's not legal. It's actually quite tricky. So if you don't want to navigate it, just go ahead and say it's too private. I can't share it. So what the group did is they spoke with a lot of legal experts and ethics experts and tried to go about this in the best way that's compliant to a lot of privacy laws And they're hoping this way they can present people who have data with enough assurances that they're going to keep the data anonymized. And I should say, you know, 
not allowing anybody to see anything is definitely the most private thing you can do. But there's always a balance here. And so this database is now live at global.health and it's huge, as you've mentioned, and it's having more and more data added to it every day. I think it's important to mention that that doesn't mean that therefore scientists now have all the data they need and all the problems can be solved. Like there's still gaps. There's still places that have very little data. If I'm looking at the map right now in Europe, Germany is listed as having more than 2 million cases in there, whereas the UK is just as if having 299,000. Now, I know there's been a lot more than 299,000 cases in the UK, and certainly more than there has been in Germany. And yet those numbers as yet don't really reflect that. And that's, I'm assuming, because there's still hurdles to get over to get all the data from countries into this database in an appropriate way. You got it. And I think what's so fascinating about this map is you can see Syria, Venezuela, Libya, Yemen, there's no data coming from those places. And this is individual case data. We know that there are cases in these places, but this means the government either isn't recording or isn't reporting data on individual cases, as in the age, something that makes us an individual compared to a lump sum. But here's what's fascinating. I've listed all those countries. Guess what else is in that group? Italy and France. Yeah. And Spain. Yeah. You know, that is more a matter of maybe they don't feel comfortable releasing the data. So those are sort of the things that this group actually is also hoping to sort of overcome. So potentially these data are coming in. How could these data be used to answer questions like the question we were asking at the beginning, how transmissible is the virus after you've had a vaccine? Or even how do the variants change the transmission dynamics of the virus? Yeah, so the database is great when you want to find kind of like big numbers, because anything can happen once. Um, You can always get some sort of exception to the rule. So that's why individual stories aren't great. And studies that are just on a cohort are just on a cohort. So this data could help depending on, you know, what information they plug in per individuals. So if we have, say, data on what variant a person had, if they're positive, we can start to ask questions like how many people who are now having their second case of COVID have the variant? That helps us think, Maybe this variant is overcoming whatever antibodies a person naturally generated. If we see that somebody who's positive was vaccinated, can we also see that they have a variant, meaning the variant evaded a vaccine? Also, if we include this variable called CT levels, which is sort of an indicator of the viral load in people, how much virus they have inside of them, we can start asking other questions about the vaccine and variants as well. So If you see that there's a high CT level, which means you have a low level of the virus because the machine really had to try and find it, does that occur in people who were vaccinated, meaning that maybe they're getting infected, but they're keeping it at a low level? And then if we see a very low CT level, which means they have a high amount of the virus, are we seeing that in people who have some of these variants? Now, that suggests that somehow the variants are allowing the virus to multiply a lot inside of them. And then you might think there's a bigger chance that they're breathing this virus out more and possibly infecting more people. That gets you at a sense of mechanism. And that particular measure, viral load, is really key to understanding how transmissible the virus is and how that might be impacted by things like variants or things like whether or not someone's been vaccinated. And before we have these large data to look at, there are other ways to try to get at that question. And the vaccine trials that were run for the various vaccines that are currently in circulation, several of them did a version of this during their trials or are continuing to do this. They tested viral load as a part of their trial. It wouldn't necessarily have been everyone, but 
it would have been a smaller cohort. And they used that to make inferences about what the vaccine was doing to transmission, as well as how effective it was at reducing disease, which is what this like 90%, 95% number is always talking about is how effective it is at reducing disease. And those trials were promising. And there is more of these data that are being gathered as vaccines roll out. Can you tell us a little bit more about the trials that are ongoing, Amy? Yeah, so there's two studies that have launched pretty recently. One is in the UK, and it's looking at health workers who were vaccinated. And it's going to test them as well as the people in their households to see if they end up getting infected. And in Israel, they're doing something similar, only with households where one person in the household has the vaccine. There's also data that we have from some of the trials on vaccines. So in the AstraZeneca trial, they have swabbed participants every week. And they estimated that there was a 50% reduction in asymptomatic infections among the people who are vaccinated compared to the placebo group. Kind of the asterisk there is this was just a subset of the people in the trial. So it's not everyone, but it does suggest that the vaccine is preventing infection. And in Moderna's vaccine trial, they tested all of their participants after the first shot and they saw a two thirds drop in the number of asymptomatic infections after people got the first shot compared to the placebo group. And the caveat there is, well, they just tested them that one time. And then again, you know, at the end of the trial. So we might be missing things. And it's also, of course, important to remember that changes to asymptomatic infections don't necessarily track on to whether or not someone can transmit the infection further just because you don't get sick doesn't mean you can't transmit it although not coughing is known to reduce the risk of transferring it to somewhere else because you're not actively shoving it out there in the environment in the same way but really to get a clear answer on how things are happening we need that big data we really need to not just look at subsets we need to look at large-scale trials which can say with some kind of statistical confidence that yes, those that have the vaccine do not appear to be passing the infection on to other people at the same rates. And that's a really key piece of information that scientists are sort of clamouring for, and will really change the course of how this pandemic progresses. And they'll make a big difference to your aunt Mimi as well, I should think, once this answer is known, Amy. It's true. And I mean, I'll tell you what I told her in the meantime. I'm not a doctor of medical science. I'm a doctor of sea spider evolution. With that caveat, (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you. This is kind of based on reading what I read and talking with friends. And I, I, you know, posted something on Twitter and public health people responded. So, right, we don't have all the data. So I told her just that. We don't know for sure if you can spread this. But the data looks pretty good. And so I think my advice was, yes, she can go out to eat in New York City's restaurants, which are at 35% capacity. If she was in a warm place, I'd say eat outside, but it's cold there. So, yeah, she could go out to eat with her friends, keep a distance since they're also vaccinated. And when any servers come close to the table, put that mask on, you know, just in case so she can protect them. And also I told her to wear the mask otherwise when she's at grocery stores and on the streets, one, to protect other people, but also because it's really unnerving for people who are at risk and who haven't been vaccinated. They don't know you're vaccinated. So it's kind of a nice thing to do to just keep wearing that mask. And I suppose we also should add that there is always the possibility that variants could change the game about the efficacy of vaccines. So it's still always good to take precautions at all times to make sure that you're doing what you can to protect yourself, even if you have been vaccinated. That's absolutely correct. And we should know more, maybe. uh, I heard at a press conference, I just read an article on this, apparently a 90-year-old woman named Esther Cohen raised her hand and asked Anthony Fauci if she could return to Mahjong games with her friends who are vaccinated. And he said, Esther, we are thinking about that. And the CDC should be coming out with guidelines soon. 
So I think what we're all saying then is read your local guidelines and stick to them, everyone, please, right? Yeah. And listen to the Esters and the Mimis of this world that are asking the really core questions that are getting to the heart of these issues. Well, on that note, then, let's leave it there for the time being. For this edition of CoronaPod, Amy and Noah, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Ben. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.